KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back. I am Jeremy Frank and uh, very thrilled to do another episode of the Industrial Transformation podcast. We are continuing our theme in lean manufacturing and we have a, a true expert and guru of lean manufacturing, Katie Anderson, who is a leadership coach and is also the author of a new book recently released two, two months ago. And the book is Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn. And it's a study on Mr. Asao Yoshino and his experiences in Toyota dating over many decades. And it's, it's been a number one new release on Amazon, and it's uh, meeting great reception. And I've just finished reading the book, and I, for, for good reason. It's a wonderful book, and I would just like to say welcome, Katie, and I'm just really excited to have a chance to speak with you. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm really looking forward to having the conversation. Wonderful. So let's dive right in. I, the book, it, it, it's, um, I really enjoyed reading it, and what I enjoyed about it so much is that it's just, it's very honest and detailed. And especially in the sense that I think you, you talk about both failure and success in very real ways that are, that are relatable. You know, they're not necessarily glamorous or high profile, but they're the kind of things that we can relate to. I, I would just, um, yeah, I just thank you for that. I just thought it was a wonderful book. Do you have any comment? I mean, was that on purpose or did you just end up that way because of Mr. Yoshino? Uh, it was kind of, it was a combination. It definitely was intentional in terms of how I approached writing the book. I knew for sure that I wanted it to be based in stories and let the lessons come from there. Uh, to unwind a little bit, uh, you know, I, I met Mr. Yoshino when I had the pleasure of living in Japan for 18 months in 2015 and 16. And we started, we met at a conference six months before and we started meeting up and I thought it was going to be a once in a lifetime experience that then subsequently turned out to be this really deep and meaningful relationship for both of us. Um, and I learned so he was he is such an honest and thoughtful, introspective person. And even from the very beginning, he allowed me to um, ask him questions and also write what I was learning from our conversation on the blog that I had just started writing. And over our the you know the last six years, as our relationship has deepened, you know, we've gone deeper and deeper into his history and helped him remember memories and see things from a different angle. Uh, but I really have to give kudos to him for being willing to, uh, you know, have some pretty honest and challenging self-reflection. You know, as as you mentioned, this is not just a book about being successful as a leader. It's about the things that about stumbling along the way, but how can we see failures and mistakes and challenges as an opportunity to learn and improve. Uh, and so I definitely wanted to really focus on leadership and learning and sort of the humanity of leadership and thought that that was really best done through just telling a real human story. Yeah, I, I, I loved it. It comes through, you know, I would say it's, it's just such important. It's, it's so important. Uh, it, it's relatable. I, I find, I found it, just very useful to read because it was very relatable. You know, it's um, a book that it's in my mind is uh, American Icon is a, a book about, yes. uh, you know, Malali Ford in the, during the financial crisis. 
which is very high pro. It's almost the opposite. It's very high profile, kind of an exciting story, but most people can't really relate to the kind of things described there. Whereas this was just, it's, it's very relatable. You can really wrap your head around being in those types of situations and understand how you could apply that in kind of your, your daily work. That's what I thought was so great about it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with you on that. And even Mr. Yoshino would say, you know, he, he wasn't like the most senior level leader at Toyota, like a Mr. Cho, uh, although he was working very closely with those leaders. And in some ways he is more relatable in that way as he was playing in many parts of his career, supporting roles to the senior leaders and certainly had, you know, t- teams reporting to him and grew in seniority as you experienced through the book as well. But, um, you know, he didn't just pop out being this, you know, the, the number one executive at the organization. And so, and we get to start with him, you know, being a young college grad, joining an organization and see his growth through a period of four decades um, until he, you know, ended up being a vice president and uh, owning a significant uh, business uh, venture at, at Toyota. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, just for those who haven't read the book yet, you know, it just starts with him, you know, being fresh out of college and going to work, you know, at in the Gemba, like at the nitty gritty uh, manufacturing. And he makes this big mistake, mixes the paint wrong and it screws up a bunch of cars. It's just it's those are the kind of things. It's just so relatable because I've done stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask. So the first thing, because I think it's the part of what you touch on in the book that most people know about is the Numi episode. So if you go to 1983 or 84, so Mr. Yoshino ran the training program in Japan to prepare American workers from GM to run a Japanese style operation in Fremont, California, uh, which is, I think, fascinating. Like, I, I don't know, I've heard various things about the Numi, you know, that whole experience. But from you actually talking with him and what he did and, and how that worked, I'm just curious, you know, it, it clearly worked. But what do you think made it work? That's a great question and one that we explored, you know, through his conversations or through our conversations. And I was really curious, too, you know, the new me as a case study is, is really famous. And, and ultimately, you know, what happened, it's interesting, uh, new me, the new me plant is actually you know, just a stone's throw uh, away from where I'm recording this, where I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I actually had a chance to go to Numi, uh, gosh, a little over a decade ago before the plant closed down. You know, in talking with Mr. Yoshino, he really believes that the success was the focus on people. And we talk about, we explore this in the book, uh, you know, talking about how there were some leaders with, even within Toyota, that believed that uh, Mr. Yoshino and his uh, group of train, he was responsible for developing, you know, that training program. They should just tell the Americans exactly what to do. And he realized and knew from his own experiences that telling people exactly what to do was not going to really change their hearts. And what they needed to do was really provide uh, a human experience that allowed them to have human connection and also to learn by doing but in a supported environment. And so they paired each American team leader or group leader who is um, coming to the Gemba to learn in Japan with their Japanese counterpart, but not just for those three weeks. They did it, they, those, those Japanese um, team members or the partners would then go for, I think about three months to California and continue to work alongside 
And, and as that person, the American uh, NUMI leader was working in the plant, still being there to coach and develop them. And I think what actually stands out as a really sharp contrast to a story later in the book, the, the water ski boat um, experience that was a failed business venture was that there wasn't that same level of coaching and support. You know, of course, there, was, there, there are many other factors in how the, the both programs were set up. But really, uh, that element of coaching and developing and not telling people exactly what to do, but helping build their capability and confidence along the way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, it, it just, it's, it was really interesting reading that perspective on it because I've, I, I've read other things about that, the, about the Numi um, experience and the Numi factory, but to understand just somebody who was so pivotal, pivotal in making. Yeah, I guess setting the ingredients right so it could actually work. I mean, it almost seems impossible that it worked, but it did. And it's amazing. It's just so neat. It, what it's, a, it, it's an incredible story. You always say, oh, you can't really change. I mean, Numi, the GM plant was like the worst performing, worst culture. And within a year, with a totally different management approach and coaching approach and sense of clarity on how management and employees were going to work together, it just totally transformed the organization. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty powerful. I was curious. I wanted to ask one thing. I mean, when I was reading the book, I, I was um, I was actually kind of intrigued to read about some of the the real inside stories, and and you actually stayed away from them. But I've heard just some crazy stories about you know when that plant was running as a GM plant as the worst GM plant, and just crazy stories of you know people like falling yeah, asleep, drinking drugs, like all this crazy stuff. Uh, and I was, I was actually, it, as I read it, I was actually glad that, you know, those things are almost gratuitous. They're interesting, but they're not, they're not purposeful. I was curious, did you do that on purpose? Did you stay away from those things or did, did you, I would have to imagine you learned some of those interesting stories in talking with them. Yes. Yeah, so this, all of the book is really told from Mr. Yoshino's direct experiences. And then I augment that with, you know, some context for people to have so that maybe if they didn't know about what Numi was, they could at least still read the story and have and have that context. But Mr. Yoshino's experience with these Americans was not them sabotaging. They came uh, to to learn, um, and so the, he has he knows those stories from hearsay as well. Uh, but his experience of them being in Japan to learn was not that. And actually, he he talks he talked to me about that, and I think we we mentioned in the book a little bit that people had this perspective that when the Americans would come, they'd still be showing up in this sort of negative way. But really, because the Japanese um, leaders at Toyota and, and the trainers greeted them with such respect and treated them with respect from the beginning, they showed up being respectful as well. And it really just shows if we, we show up in a really confrontational way, we, we have results that are more confrontational and sort of negative. But if we can show up treating each other with respect and really seeing the humanity. Again, this is this concept of respect for people and respect for humanity. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I was, I was really shocked to read that. I think I mentioned when we talked a few weeks ago that I, we were actually in my, uh, my co-founder, Professor Koopman and I were in Japan in the year 2000, which ultimately led to us starting the company. And so we just got to live there for a while and experience some of the culture, the Japanese culture, but it is just it's um it's a, it's just really fascinating amazing and and wonderful that that worked yes. and it just because it just shows you that it, it can happen you know it, it's um 
people are able to change much more than you might think that they would be able to, is I think my takeaway. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, the very last part of the book before we go into the conclusion is talking about how the, the two pillars of the Toyota way, which has been translated by Toyota itself as continuous improvement and respect for people actually misses some richness of the meaning as it's known in J the Japanese characters that represent those words. And the, what we say respect for uh, people actually is respect for humanity. And I really see that that goes so much deeper. It's like the, the core of what makes us humans. And uh, so it's not just, I respect you because you're a leader or more senior than I am, but I respect you because you are a person. Uh, and I think that's just a really uh, important nuance. Yeah, actually, let's jump to that because that was that that's on my list of things I wanted to talk with you about. I, I found that fascinating. Again, I, you know, trying to learn as much as I could of the Japanese language. It's just a fascinating language. I mean, every language is fascinating, I guess. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, the whole idea, in fact, I was just talking a bit earlier about re just reading that, reading your description of how it's hard to capture the essence of, of you know, terminology in Japanese and translate it into English. It made me think of my, you know, my favorite author is, uh, is Fyodor Dostoevsky. And it actually made me want to learn Russian so I could actually read that in Russian. <laughs> and I probably never will, but it, it's, um, I just thought that was such an interesting thing because you, you, you do, you, I mean, we work with Toyota a lot and we talk about respect for people, but to go back and read from his point of view, that was actually broader than that because he was there. I mean, he was there when they were defining it. Um, I, I actually wrote, my note was value and respect humanity mm -hmm. is what I kind of, that's how I summarized the paragraph. How would you, I guess you just phrased it. It's, um, I mean, how, what, what else would you add to that, that you take away that's different than what people normally talk about in lean circles? I think we tend to just throw out respect, uh, respect for people. And that gets confused. So Mr. Yoshino clarified for me, and I shared this in the book, that you know, there's sort of like two different types of respect. And I mentioned this a bit earlier that you can have respect for someone because they're in a particular role, or like, you know, we talk to, you know, talk to children, respect your elders. So that is that is a different level of it's a different type of respect versus this respect that really comes down to um, the humanness of all of us and the leading with kindness and not just because you're, you have a certain title, but because you are, you know, you're a person or you're a living being. And I think it just, it, it, it gets, it's much richer and it gets to concepts of like kindness and love and, um, support in a different way than just, I respect you and I maybe will be compliant because you're my leader and I'm going to, you're telling me something versus, you respect me as a, as a person. And I can tell that you're also providing the support, not just the challenge that you've issued, but the, that you're there to support and develop me along the way. I think what's really interesting too, from my experience of both living in Japan for a year and a half, and also I loved learning the language as well, uh, and talking with Mr. Yoshino over the last six years is really understanding how Toyota's culture is not synonymous with Japanese culture. Of course, there are elements of Japanese culture that um, has greatly influenced it and um, things that are in contrast to maybe um, our cultures in the West. But uh, the typical Japanese culture is very hierarchical where, you know, I, I would tell people that in Japan that I, you know, I'm studying Toyota and it's a great coaching culture where, you know, the people centered and leader as coach. And they'd say, wow, that is not their experience with other Japanese companies. 
where people look to the, they've been trained to look to the leader for all the answers and uh, sort of creativity and innovation has been dampened. Uh, and I see that Toyota in some ways leveraged the hierarchy of Japanese culture, but then in, inverted it. And so there is still that hierarchy, but it's really around how do, how does like the next manager, the next up really develop what Mr. Yoshino says, that chain of learning rather than the chain of telling. Uh, and it's just, it's, so you go to Japan and you've probably had this experience. Not all companies are like Toyota. Um, and so it's, I think, important for us to remember that distinction. Yeah, definitely. And I, so I, I'll come back because I, I also want to talk about the continuous improvement pillar, but let's jump to that because, so you talk in about the, in 1979, I think it was the, the Ken Pro, Kenru Noriyuki uh, part of his career. And I think it's easy for me to, to think about Toyota now and think, you know, the, the way that they are has always been that way. But in fact, you know, the whole idea of like telling a, a clear story on an A3, you know, piece of paper and, you know, the way that they set targets and the way that they um, create opportunities for leaders to develop that th those things were to some extent going off the rails in the in the mid 70s for Toyota. And then they did a course correction. You know, so it's not like um, at least my read of that, and I'm so interested to hear more. It's, it's not like um, Taichi Ono, you know, came down with the the tablets in the '50s, and then everybody everything worked perfectly. They had to work on this stuff just like everybody else did, and he was directly personally involved in setting that different culture. Is that is that accurate? Yes, uh, and that's what I think also is so um, unique and special about Mr. Yoshino's experiences you know in some ways he says he represents all of you know toyota's experiences but he also was involved personally in some very important uh pivotal times in uh in toyota's history as it was intentionally creating the culture that we now sort of assume and take for granted as synonymous with with toyota and so one of those times was the conpro program in the late 1979-1980 where the Toyota leadership following the, the oil crisis in the 70s and, and sort of, you know, 15, 20 years after they had really been focused on the quality uh, circles and had gotten uh, gotten the Deming Award in the 1960s, management, as Mr. Yoshino says, realized they needed to tighten the belt and get get serious again about nurturing the management capabilities that they thought was were most important. And by the leadership, I mean the president and the president's executive team. And that's where the CONPRO program was, was created out of. And it was a two-year program. And they used A3 thinking, A, the process of A3 and doing Hoshin Connery strategy deployment, not just for uh, managing operational problems, but also for managers to clearly indicate what role they were going to have in coaching and developing their team members to achieve the targets. And, and Mr. Yoshino considers that two-year program that he was one of like a handful of people intimately involved with supporting as the, the critical force that established A3 as a standard communication tool and uh, method across Toyota. And in fact, uh, John Shook, who then just a few years later, during the new Ming training program, reported to Mr. Yoshino, uh, John Shook's written a book that really introduced A3 thinking in many ways to the Western world called Managing to Learn. 
he used Mr. Yoshino and Mr. Yoshino's assistant manager, who was John's actual direct manager, as the model for um, what a what a what a what a leader or a manager at Toyota looks like in terms of setting direction and then providing that coaching support to develop an A3. Absolutely. I, I'd like to hear you, you know, one of the lessons that I, I took in my notes through that part is uh, the uh, no problem is a problem. Mm. You, know, you know, basically like an open embrace of issues so that you can work with them. So rather than, you know, accusing subordinates of failing to meet the expectation, you're, you're basically welcoming uh, the awareness of problems so that you can then work on them. It's useful news. Could you talk about that a little bit more too? Sure. And, you know, that's, that's a phrase that Mr. Yoshino's, re, you know, repeated from, from day one. It's one of his mantras. And I, I suppose it's one of the mantras of Toyota too. And that goes in hand in hand with like a no blame culture too. So if you want people to feel comfortable with bringing forward problems or challenges or things not going to plan, you also need to be there to not blame them, uh, but look at the process instead. And he would say that, you know, if, if we don't have visibility to the things that aren't going well, then we don't have the opportunity to actually work on them and improve them. And we're sort of, you know, brushing them all under the, the carpet, but we know that those things are still existing and, and they're actually going to impact the outcomes that we eventually uh, see and not necessarily in, in the good way. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm going to ask you to just conjecture a bit, and I don't know, feel free if this is outside of your direct experience, but it's also just, I'm interested just to hear your conjecture and your opinion. Um, so if you fast forward to the present, you know, technology is changing very quickly. Industry 4.0, industrial internet of things. There's this massive wave of, of technology that's hitting every industrial manufacturing site. And you know, despite the the success of of the Numi uh, experience, a company like um, like GM, in some ways, is is you know still struggling with some of the same things they were struggling with thirty years ago. And I'm curious what you see. You know, both looking at, a, at at Toyota, how they embrace or use all this new technology, and then also a company like GM, and especially thinking about those experiences in Japan, where it's clearly possible for people to change, like reorient themselves and, and commit to running, to, to doing things in a more lean minded way. And hypothetically, technology provides a path to do that more, more expeditiously. Can you comment on either or both of those? So <laughs> this will be total conjecture on my, uh, you know, on my end as well. So I, uh, you know, since I haven't, I'm not working at Toyota and certainly have never, never worked at, at GM either. But one of the things I see Toyota doing really successfully is really continuing that focus on people and the, and, and leverage, where can they leverage and highlight people's special capabilities and then use technology to support that as well. And again, Toyota has, you know, they have their manufacturing side, but they also have areas devoted to innovation and, um, you know, technology as well that, so when we say Toyota, it's, you know, we often think of just the automobile manufacturing part, uh, but there's, there's so much more as well in terms of how they're ideating and uh, using technology to support the, the production. But again, if you go to Toyota, you still see on the line, it's mainly people there 
put in doing the final assembly. They use technology uh, and automation for the parts that really can be routinized and, and standardized, but they want people to be there to use their creativity to continuously improve on other areas. You know, and I don't know, you know, I've read books about GM, of course, too, and what they took or didn't take from from that Numi experience. But I think I would imagine it's the same same case as, as many of us that we focused more on the tools and the outcomes rather than really the deeply fundamental process or the fundamental truth of Toyota, as Yoshino would say, is that there's no secret to Toyota except its attitude towards learning. And learning still requires this human element. Of course, we can have AI learning as well, and it'll be really interesting to see how um, we use artificial intelligence to help increase our learning as individuals and as organizations. Uh, but it's not just about the outcome. It's about the learning experience through that as well. So I don't know if I really answered your question, but those are some thoughts that come to my mind right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are great thoughts and it definitely resonates. I mean, I think especially the fact that it's the focus always is on the people, elevating people and then finding ways for the technology to support the people that that that, you know, that yeah. definitely resonates with everything I've observed. And um, yeah, it, it paints a very promising picture, frankly. So it also that I want to come back to 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 the pillars, because, you know, the other one that that there was a distinction about was just, you know, Kaizen, continuous improvement. But it, like, as I kind of read what you wrote, I wrote wisdom and continuous improvement, which I think is pretty interesting because it's sort of like establishing knowledge or wisdom as being valuable in and of itself, you know, whether you make good cars or not. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. And actually, you know, as we were talking, uh, I was thinking too, this was a nice segue to go back to the, the concept of continuous improvement and the other pillar, because, you know, there's this sense of humanity that comes with wisdom that, that we can do improvement with technology as well. But wisdom really, to me, speaks to um, a sort of a human element as well. So this was an interesting discovery too. And actually, Mr. Yoshino, he had just had never noticed it before. But uh, Michelle Baudin was at a session that we had a few years ago here in San Francisco and asked if we were talking about the Toyota Way 2001. And Michelle speaks um, and reads Japanese fluently and, and said to Mr. Asked Mr. Yoshino, can you comment on why the, the Japanese characters under the pillar of continuous improvement, even in the, in the Toyota document, says wisdom and kaizen? Uh, Chie to Kaizen, whereas they translated in English just as continuous improvement. And so you can see some of my response or Mr. Yoshino's response in, in the book there. And I think we get to this interesting element that there's, we miss this nuance with this concept of continuous. Yes, uh, we, you know, we're always learning and maybe that's where we can, knowledge becomes wisdom. But to me, the word wisdom in English conveys so much more than just continuous improvement. And so there's an element there that really gets back and connected to that concept of, of humanity. And I actually wanted, I wanted to highlight one other thing too, getting back to the ConPro uh, program and how that was sort of 20 years after uh, Toyota was really focusing on its you know, quality, quality improvement initiatives. And then they worked on ConPro to really shore up the management capabilities. And again, about 20 years later, that's when the Toyota Way 2001 was codified. 
And it's almost like these 20 year cycles having to put renewed energy and focus into um, supporting and, uh, you know, as Yoshina would say, retightening the belt on the culture and how it's getting translated through the generational learning and maintaining that wisdom. And maybe that's where oh, I'm just thinking out loud. Maybe that's part of where that concept of wisdom comes as well. It's like, how do you pass that down generation to generation uh, and an organization sort of that leadership of chain of learning? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I just think it's fascinating that that piece of it was somehow either intentionally or unintentionally lost in translation but that, I mean, you come back to the kind of the idea of, of lean merging with these industry 4.0 capabilities and you, and you mentioned AI. I, I don't know if the real AI people would say this, but I, like, I don't think AI can create wisdom. You know, right. it can create facts and it can create insights maybe. That knowledge. But wi wisdom is fundamentally a human thing probably. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. And, and right. So I think that that's, that's where we retain that hum humanity, the human element that uh, makes us so unique. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I mean, it definitely supports, you know, as we work with, you know, people from lots of different parts of the auto sector and these other industrial sectors, it's just something we continually experience. It's just all about the people. The, the technology supports what the people do, but yeah, dialing it back to wisdom, it, it just really sets an elevated, like a lofty goal. I really like that. So let me ask you a a question, if I may, because I like to um, I, I like to keep things consistent and, and kind of focus on the same couple of, of questions in each of these these themes that we pursue. And um, the first one is maybe as a as a problem, and and I mean we could we haven't really talked about the 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 failure, the the, the really interesting you know failure in creating a a Toyota you know, water ski boat business, which I don't, I didn't even know about that. I didn't know that it ever happened until I read the book. I know. I don't um, think many people would. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's fascinating that that, you know, Toyota is wonderful, but Toyota makes mistakes too. And, and people make mistakes, but, I, and I'm not, you know, I, I think we could relate it to that. Well, actually, let me start there before I, before I move on to that. Is there anything about that episode that you think is particularly noteworthy in the context of what we talked about to, to share with the listeners? Well, again, just to provide some context so people know uh, what we're what we're talking about in the uh, 80s, Toyota established a department that encouraged like sort of new business ventures to be explored and, and knowing that they weren't always going to be successful. So Mr. Yoshino had an idea for an American uh, market uh, for in the American market to do water ski boats using the Lexus motor and creating sort of a high end sort of Lexus grade water ski boat. And uh, he was, you know, put in charge of, of this venture ultimately, and it failed and he lost the company $13 million. And I, I think what's, what's notable about it is one that, you know, Toyota is willing to take make experiments or take under undergo experiments and explore new ideas. So not just automobiles and staying in their bread and butter, but always looking at other things that they may be able to do and took responsibility for the failure. And this goes back to the same, uh, you know, experience Mr. Yoshino had in his orientation when he, the, the, the paint, you know, the, the paint story where he, he put wrong the wrong paint in a hundred cars had to be 
had to be repainted. And his manager thanked him for making the mistake because they had now an opportunity to improve the working conditions and, and better label, better, better label the environment. And in this case, Mr. Cho uh, acknowledged that the company too had played a significant role. Uh, it wasn't just Mr. Yoshino who failed, but the company had some failures too. And they are all new to this boat business and they were learning. And so just really back to the concept of learning, but you know, he wasn't like thrown out on the street and fired at the end of his career just because of this, you know, this, failure, uh, he was put into a new role and uh, where he could leverage his, his learning from that experience. Yeah. I, and I mean, I appreciate it. What I would add to that though, Katie, too, what I so appreciated about the, the book and the story that you and he told together is that, um, you know, I've been doing entrepreneurship for 20 years and people sometimes talk about failure or fast failure or pivoting and what, until you've actually really experienced feel, failure, it's, you know, it's easy to under, underrate how the painfulness of the failure. Like I even, I could read that, you know, that even it's, you know, 15, 20, 25 years later, when you were talking with him, it, you were kind of undercovering these skeletons from the closet, you know, that oh, yeah. you're like, yes, they'd acknowledge that it wasn't, you know, that, that it was a good learning experience, but it was still painful for him 20, 25 years later. And I think that's just very real, very honest. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this, he always, it, since I've met him, talked about, you know, mentioned the water ski boat failure, but really didn't go into much depth with it. And it even just up until a few months ago, and even just a few weeks before the book was published, some new things came out. But it was a really, really hard time for him to talk about. And, and really, the, the story that you read in the book uh, was uncovered through many, many months and actually years of conversation. And for a while, he wasn't really wanting to talk about it. He almost looked gray. Um, you know, he would he, he was willing to talk to me about anything, but uh, he had this, it was really special, uh, this one moment where one of our video calls, he just all of a sudden looked happy and cheerful. And he said it was like this weight had been removed from him, was my interpretation of his words. He could see his, his failure and his, the things he, he was really kind of beating himself up over uh, in a new light and with a different perspective through the questions and sort of uh, me trying to piece together the story. So it wasn't that he wasn't owning the things that he had done wrong uh, or maybe not as good as he would have liked to, but he it removed that burden from him. And so if anything, I think that opportunity to help him see his failures and his successes in a different light um, was really valuable to me and very rewarding. Yeah, I think it was. I, yeah, thank you for writing about that and just getting that story because I think it's just so relatable. Because mm. we've all we've all been there in different ways. I think it's yeah. just great. What I think. So is let me really, ask you. I, oh, sorry, I just wanted to say what, what I find also really interesting about that story too is like, you know, we in the best of times we can all lead really well, but you know when things are stressful and you feel like things are like flailing or you know going going down or you're just stressed with time, you know even we may not do the things that we know um, we should be doing as leaders and as managers. And, you know, Mr. Yoshino fell into that same, that same case. The, the guy who basically taught all of Toyota executives how to do strategy deployment, Hushin Conry, then like didn't do it himself in the way that he knew he should because he felt too pressed for time. And so I just think it's a really human story. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so relatable. I, I yeah, I, there, there were three or four different things I've done that I could relate to just like that. 
Yeah. Look, let me ask you this. So I, I do, we're getting kind of to past the, the, the time, but this is a fascinating discussion. I want to ask a, a couple questions in wrapping up. And the first one, it kind of relates to this, but uh, you know, take it as you as you would like to. The so you know you've 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 written this book. You're practicing uh, you know leadership coaching and lean, and you're you're surely encountering all kinds of problems. You know whether it's the failure of some business or the failure of leadership in some organization or at the individual level. And what I what I would like to ask you is, what is it if if you could just snap your fingers and solve something? And have, I don't know, you wouldn't want to have failures not happen because failures are, are learning experiences. But what is it that you would like to be able to eradicate as a problem as it relates to the experiences in this book or just in your in your career? That's a that's a that's a big question. I've <laughs> one that requires more pondering and thought, but the and and I will, I'll probably come back with you to you with some other other thoughts on this. But the first thing that really jumps out to me is is how we as humans uh, have so much the habit of telling and advocating for our own thoughts and ideas and how limiting that is in creating and uh, cultivating learning for others and learning within our organizations. And uh, across the board, both with me working in organizations um, when I was working in the corporate world or you know in, in healthcare environments as well, and now consulting and coaching uh, leaders and organizations, I think I've experienced that our habit of telling gets in our way so much. And of course, there's a there's a role for telling and setting direction, but we we have a complete imbalance um, as humans, in especially as an adult as adult humans, I should say, in in telling so much. And we're not even aware of it. Sometimes we think we're asking a question, but it's really a question disguise or our, our idea disguised as a question. And so what I would like to wave the magic wand is to, to create more awareness for everyone about what's coming out of our mouth. And when asking a better question would actually serve us more in the long run than running around sort of telling everyone what to do. And I really think that that's, gets, that's the heart of um, developing a learning culture. Yeah, I, I love I love that answer, Katie. I mean, that was it. It wasn't in my notes, but I remember that that part of of his story, like early early in the career, just specifically learning how to ask patient, you know, humble questions. That as a pro, it's just it's a. It reminds me of that. It's it's um, fascinating. Yeah. So question number two: Do you think it's possible? So if you take it out to the you know ten years from now, do you know, do you think either with that or with, um, you know, just generally in, in the manufacturing world, in the industrial world, in the leadership world, do you think it's possible? Like how do you think people can become more humble or, or something else? Like, what do you think, what do you look to when you look 10 years out or further in a positive sense? I, you mean, do you mean, do I think people can be more humble? I, sorry, can you yeah. Do you think, I mean, so maybe just in that specific context, you know, if you had a magic wand, people would be better at listening and better at asking genuine questions and, mm -hmm. you know, rather than telling people what to do or just, you know, jamming their ideas down downward. So do I, you I think things are getting better is really my question. Well, so I, I'll go, I don't know. I don't know if things are getting better, but I hope they are. <laughs> we're, we're always getting better. <laughs> uh, 
you know, to me, that always gets back to this concept of, of purpose. And, and this is, I work with, when I work with individuals or leadership teams, I say, you know, like first draw your purpose. Like what is, what are the most important things to you? Identify that, um, not just from a professional side, but from your whole life. And it always comes down to like people and helping others and connecting and making the world better. And so if we can hold on to that purpose, uh, then we can better align our our behaviors with that purpose. So you know we want to we want to help people improve. We want our organization to succeed. We want to be better. So it's about staying connected to that purpose and then creating some self awareness about how our actions and the words that we say either are aligning or not aligning with. Um, with that purpose. And I actually call that leading with intention uh, because, you know, Japanese all, uh, you know, there's the word intention in Japanese is made up of uh, partially of a symbol that means heart and the other one meaning direction. And to me, it's about leading with intentions about understanding what's important for you inside or what you want to be achieving. And then how are you orienting and aligning your behaviors in that direction? And so I think if we can connect with purpose and create some self-awareness, we're really going to be able to move in that direction of, of making the world better. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I mean, also, again, telling these stories from Toyota, you know, you look at, uh, you know, respecting humanity and, you know, wisdom and continuous improvement as those are, those point you in the right direction. I think, I mean, that's one of the things that's so remarkable, mm. remarkable about Toyota. Um, uh, last, last question I do have, okay. we're running out of time, but this, and this is, I know that my these questions are intentionally a, a little um, just thought provoking because I really like to hear you know you're an expert in this area and I like to hear what you really think. This question is kind of about your own thinking, and it is um, can you share with us something that you know to be true or believe to be true that's divergent, me meaning that most people don't yet agree with you about. Uh, this thing that you know to be true. What, what would you say that is for you? Oh my gosh, that that's a question that requires <laughs> some deeper thinking too. Uh, it's a hard question to answer immediately because I think it's a really great question. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's something that other people don't know to be true but maybe are not as connected, um, connected with it. And it, to me, it goes back to exactly what we were um, just talking about is that sometimes, and I, you know, I'm guilty of this as well, but that in the long run, we achieve more by slowing down and asking more questions and, uh, in the busyness of our lives, um, or the sense of urgency of all the things we need to do or the crises happening in our organizations, we revert to this sense of like just telling to be more expedient to get it done. Uh, but in reality, if we could slow down and ask more questions and think more deeply, we'll be more effective at sort of solving problems at the root cause and also um, sort of distributing creativity across our organizations. And so this is something that um, I don't know if others would disagree with me on per se, but maybe don't have the aren't always bringing this forward to their um, their their awareness as well. And it's something I have to be really intentional about each and every day. I mean, even with my family, it's like, how do I ask more questions? How do I slow down a little bit and not feel so overwhelmed by all the things 
that's ha- that are happening here because I know ultimately to achieve my purpose, I will be more effective if I can be slower, think more deeply and help others do the same. Yeah, I, I think that's very enlightening. You know, I, um, you know, people may not think that they disagree with you, but but we do in our behaviors. Dis- mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. I think I've probably done that three times today. I'm just reflecting. Uh, it's hard, uh, man. It's experience hard. Over, over patience and really learning and, and relying on others. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, a, that's very, uh, very thoughtful. Thanks for the thought-provoking questions. Well, you're very welcome. I, I, um, I like to ask that last question particularly because it, really, it forces you to, to really think about the kind of the way that you see the world. And I think that's just a wonderful answer. That, um, well, I would ask, you know, we, are, we, we do need to wrap up. We're out of our time uh, allotment. But I would just ask, uh, Katie, is there anything else that you would like to share with the industrial transformation audience before we end? Sure. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to hearing you know questions or comments from any of you. You can contact me either through the book's website, which is lo- simple. It's learning to lead, leading to learn.com or my own website, which is KBJ Anderson. My, mar- my maiden name was Brian Jones. So my initials are KBJA. Um, and I really love connecting with people around the world. And so I look forward to hearing from you and please um, read the books and learn from Mr. Yoshino or the book and learn from Mr. Yoshino's wisdom as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And I definitely, I, this is just a fantastic book. I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to gain a lot of receptance for all the reasons we've talked about. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for spending that time and gathering those stories. And, and also thanks for being on the industrial transformation podcast. This is Jeremy Frank. And thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, a production of Business Builders Media. Learn more about how KCF can help you on your industrial transformation journey at kcftech.com and check out more shows on businessbuildersmedia.com.